Thank you, Laura, and thank you, Brian, for... Oh, that's robust. Thank you for your sharing this morning. Um, it was great. As we've gone through this um, series on the prophets, we're looking at the book of Amos. We're going to hit also the book of Joel and the book of Habakkuk. Um, but a con- consistent theme is that God is judging Israel for their lack of justice, their lack of concern for uh, the poor, the needy, uh, a lack of a generous spirit, um, and a lack of pursuing fairness. Those are the three main ideas behind justice. Pursuing fairness, caring for the poor and protecting the vulnerable, and giving generously. So those are the, those are the outcomes of a people that have rejected God. There is a, a, um, a disregard for people, especially those who are in greatest need. Now the passage, uh, we didn't read all of chapter 6, but the sermon today is, is on chapters, pretty much all of chapter 6. And at, towards the end of the chapter, Amos says, well, God says through Amos, that Israel had turned justice into poison and righteousness into a bitter-tasting fruit. See, justice opposed the daily flow of things in Israel. And to engage in justice in Israel at this time was to poison the culture of oppression and greed. Now, poison is not a good thing, generally, but when you have a a culture where good things, where justice is as a poison, that's where Israel was at. And if you remember, uh, I I hadn't remembered this uh, this story, but uh, uh, Meredith reminded me of it um, this, this past week, the story of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And remember, there's a passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago where judgment is coming against the wives of of the elite, the aristocracy, the ruling class of Israel, uh, because they had pushed their husbands to the oppressive lifestyles and the oppressive culture that Israel had at that point. And a perfect example of this was Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was not a great guy. He was an evil guy. He was a worshiper of false gods. But his wife, who was not a, she was not an Israelite, um, she was a Sidonian, and she came in and expanded the false worship. And there was one woman, and this is a very telling story, really about where things are at and where justice had gotten to. Ahab um, had his palace on the, on the Mount of Samaria, so this is the capital city. Next to him uh, was a man who owned a, a, a beautiful vineyard, and it had been in the family for a long time. And Ahab, the king, wanted the vineyard. So he went and he offered to trade the owner of the vineyard um, some other great property or to pay him for what it was worth. And the owner of the vineyard said, no, uh, far be it from me that I would ever release the land of my ancestors. It's because in, in Jewish law, uh, every 50 years, all of the land went back to um, its, its original family as it was dispersed when they came into the land uh, through the leadership of Joshua. And so to, to let go of your land was just uh, outside of what, what God's rule was. And so Ahab, 
he kind of he throws a tantrum and goes back to his palace and just basically pouts, all right? And his wife Jezebel sees him and says, what, what are you pouting about? You are the king of, king of Israel. And he said, well, I wanted this vineyard, but he wouldn't sell it to me. And she's like, you're the king. You're the king. You should have whatever you want. And so she instructed the township uh, that this vineyard was in. And she said, hey, get yourselves together. Create some false accusations. Okay, so this would have been like pulling the men of the city together, the elders of the city together, um, and create some false accusations. So here is the courts being used to engage in injustice. Bring some false accusations against the vineyard owner. I can't remember his name. That's why I keep calling him the vineyard owner. Uh, But he is named. He is named in the passage. Bring some false accusations against him. Say that he's denied God and he has denied the king uh, and then put him to death. And that's what they did. And he took the vineyard. And then God brings Elijah the prophet in to bring judgment. So that was justice in the time of Israel. That was the use of the courts in the time of Israel. So um, you can also get the sense, you know, that uh, whenever you're watching a contemporary movie, we just watched the movie Marshall a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it's a story of Thurgood Marshall, first uh, African-American Supreme Court justice in American history. Uh, But they showed some of his early life as a lawyer, and he he traveled around the country on behalf of the NAACP, um, uh, fighting cases for African Americans who were innocent but who were being unjustly prosecuted for a crime that they didn't commit. And he would be very square and firm with the clients that he would represent. He wanted to make sure they were innocent and he wanted to make sure that he was fighting injustice. And so the whole, the whole movie is about a particular trial, um, but you, you can get the sense And you've seen these kinds of movies, they've been around for a long time, where here he is fighting against injustice, and he's using the law, and he's very skillful in the law, but the judge and the all-white jury and the all-white audience in the courtroom and the whole town, the whole town is against him. Not because of the law, not because of right and wrong, simply because they are black, Okay, and an offense has been committed against a white woman or presumably has been committed against a white woman. And so everybody is against them. The truth is not what matters. So you have a whole culture. And, and it's, it's, that, it's then when you sense that justice is a poison. Okay? Justice should be a good thing, a freeing thing, but the, but the whole culture was mixed up. The strongholds, God says, I hate your strongholds because they defend oppression. You, you have erected the military, the police, the structures of society that are there to protect. What they are now protecting is oppression. So this is where Israel got. And to God, this is an unnatural state 
especially for the people of God. And it will not last. It will not last. God says later in the, in the chapter, do oxen and horses, do, do horses run on rocks? Do oxen plow the sea? No. No. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And that is God's view of injustice. It does not work with the people that I have created. And it will not last. I've been reading this book called uh, Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman. And I want to read a segment out of it. It's too long to put on, this, on the thing. But it's a great story. And I heard he was speaking at the Westminster Forum that they have on a regular basis here in Minneapolis. The name of the author is James Foreman, Jr. He's an African-American uh, lawyer. He's a professor at Yale. And uh, he tells this story. And he is defending. So a season of his life, he, he had a, a mission to defend, um, to defend African-Americans who are being tried unjustly in the, in the, in the, in the justice system. Or... or Maybe they were there and they deserved to be there, but he was, he was pressing for the, for the system to be as merciful as possible. And the title, Locking Up Our Own, um, it's, it's, it's a set of stories about um, African, the African-American, well, the, the United States correction system and how it's un, unjustly um, skewed to lock up more African-Americans and minorities. Uh, but what he had noticed in his history, in his, in his work, was that he could sit um, in a courtroom as a lawyer, as an African-American lawyer, um, defending an African-American defendant. Uh, the judge is African-American. The jury is African-American. He's talking about Washington, D.C. The prosecuting attorney, who was Eric Holder at the time, was African-American. The city council was African-American. And so he was like, how is it that an entire group of people who identify with the oppressed minority, how is it that we are a part of the system? And so he's defending it, and the, this man is in front of the judge. His name is Brandon. Brandon had pleaded guilty to possessing a handgun and a small amount of marijuana, Enough to use, but not to sell. I had argued for probation. Judge Walker told Brandon he was considering my proposal. But first he had some things to say. Mr. Foreman says you need another chance. This is the judge speaking. But let me ask you, do you even realize how many chances you've already had? You might think you have it hard. But let me tell you, it was harder once. Black boys picked cotton once upon a time, sat in the back of the bus, those who were lucky enough to even be on the bus and not walking. Judge Walker was getting into his rhythm now. He wasn't a preacher, but he sounded like somebody who had spent more than a few Sundays in the pews. Now you can go to school, study hard, live your dreams. It isn't easy. I know that. But it is possible. And people fought, struggled, and died for that possibility. Dr. King died for that, son. And what are you doing? Not studying. No, you're cutting class, running and thugging, not listening to your mama or grandmother. 
Instead, you want to listen to some hoodlum friends. By now, the judge was glaring at Brandon. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see that Brandon was keeping his gaze steady on the judge. This was good. Judge Walker liked that. If Brandon avoided eye contact, Judge Walker would think he was being disrespectful. Well, let me tell you, Dr. King didn't march and die so that you could be a fool, so that you could be out on the street getting high, carrying a gun, and robbing people. No, young man, that was not his dream. That was not his dream at all. This was the speech I knew so well. The words changed a bit each time, but the theme stayed the same. Life is not easy for African Americans today, but it's better than it was. And you best stop being a thug and start taking advantage of the opportunities that others have fought so hard for. So here's where I wanted to spend so much time with that. It, is, it would be a hard, maybe not, but you could easily get the sense that there is not progress in discrimination. Life is hard for minorities and African Americans in our culture, but it is better. It is better. And I wanted to read this because it's coming from an African American lawyer talking about an African American judge defending an African American defendant. Um, and I want to say it not because, because America is great, okay? America is good, America is not great. Things will be great when Jesus returns. But here's what I want to say, because it testifies, I think, in a very significant way to this truth. Injustice is not God's intent. Injustice is not God's intent. It is unnatural. It is natural for our flesh. But Jesus Christ has crucified the flesh, and he has risen from the dead, Overcoming Satan, sin, and death. That is the trajectory of this world. And the kingdom of God will come, and justice will indeed be spread throughout all creation. So I want to I emphasize, injustice is as horses running on rocks. Injustice is as oxen plowing the sea. It won't last very long. It won't ultimately be the victorious way of things. So what are the challenges to justice? What do we see here in this indictment, in this chapter 6, about what generates, what, what is behind injustice? Last week, uh, we looked at um, the oppression of the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. Today we're going to look at arrogance and pride, and perhaps I should have put this first. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. Oops, wrong. That's a later quote. I'm just going to read this one to you. There's a, there's a foundational element about pride, and you see it here in this passage, and this is why I probably should have preached on it first. Pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure, and here's where here's it gets to the crux of it. Pride, pride gets no pleasure of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. 
So pride is this, is this, I mean, naturally, I mean, if you look in the definitions in the dictionaries, it's, it's this having a too, too lofty of a perspective about yourself. You think too highly of yourself. You see yourself too highly. And in that exalted sense of self that you have, you basically see everybody below you. Everybody's below you because you're of your, of your exalted sense of self. And that, that exalted sense of self then propels you to not only think of others as below you, but to strive to put them below you. Note the things that he say, that Amos says here. You all feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. You are the notable men. Okay, this is the aristocracy, the, the kings and the, the upper class, the, the nobles. You are the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. So everybody is, they see the house of Israel kind of serving them. And they say, have we not, at the end of the chapter, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? So they had just, in, historically in the book setting, they had just, they had just conquered um, this region to their east. And it was a great military victory. And it was a, it was a powerful nation that they had conquered. Um, and so they grew increasingly arrogant, and, and God is saying, and, well, and, and they started boasting that it was they themselves that had given them victory, and, and we're clearly the, the historical account of it in the scriptures attributes God, even though that they were an unjust nation and, and running away from him, uh, there are still times, as in our own lives, uh, where God, because of his purposes, does good even though we are undeserving of it. So this was one of those times. And so they began to boast in their military victories as something that they achieved and acquired on their own. They saw themselves as untouchable. They saw themselves as better than the other kingdoms around them because other kingdoms have been conquered, but they hadn't been conquered yet. And God says, are you any different than, than the Philistines? Are you any different than those folks? Are you any different? Than... No, you're no different. Is their land greater than yours, making it more desirable for foreign armies to come in and take it over? No, your land is the best land. Your land is the most desirable. You've been protected because I've been protecting you. He says, you, you see the day of judgment, way the day of disaster, way far off. But you are bringing near the seat of violence. In, in your delusional sphere of pride and arrogance that nothing bad can ever happen to you, that you are greater than all the peoples around you. You aren't seeing the corruption that is breeding in your own homes, in your own cities, that will eventually bring the destruction. Again, C.S. Lewis says here, in God you come up against something that is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself unless you know God as that unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison you do not know God at all as long as you are proud you cannot know God a proud man is always looking down on things and people and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So we see here that humility, humility is a prerequisite to justice. Just as you know, I've shown on that, 
on that uh, cycle of material delight. I'll show the chart up here at the end of the sermon. A life before God that is able to enjoy the blessings of God must first begin in recognition through humility that everything we have and everything that we are is a gift from God. You need to immediately connect everything that you experience as a good thing. And it is from the hand of God. And we also see oppression and indifference. If Lewis is correct, and I think he is, we just have this exalted sense of self. And that was really the first sin in the garden where man and woman wanted to be God. They didn't want to follow God. They wanted to be God. Then everything begins from that sin, from that corruption. You don't acknowledge God as God, and you seek to be your own God. And then that then leads to other types of sins, indifference and oppression, which is also what we saw here. And we looked at that more in detail last week. We saw unfair business practices. We saw courts biased to the rich. We saw human trafficking, etc. All the contemporary things that we would identify as injustice. And they describe all of this, um, Laura read it, you know, they're eating and drinking and dancing and resting. You see this, this, this opulent life of leisure that the aristocracy of Israel is experiencing, and he says, yet you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Now, Joseph is referring to all of Israel, but he brings up Joseph because as you see in Scripture, uh, God is promising, you know, we spent the first week talking about how God promised this great abundance of material blessing. We would, they would have more food, they would have more drink, they would have complete security, There would be nothing that they could ever be afraid of negative happening to them. And so God used this as a motivation because ultimately to follow God is to enter into this great experience of of delight and joy and experiencing and, and receiving and experiencing and delighting in his blessings. That's a significant part of what it means to to know and enjoy God. So that was out there. Um but it's constantly described and promised through the blessings given to Joseph. At the end of Genesis, you have chapter 49, the blessings of Jacob to his 12 sons. And all 12 sons, the only one where it is this overwhelming, abundant description of blessing is Joseph. And then when Moses also blesses the 12 tribes before they go into the land, it's the same thing. Joseph is known for abundant blessing because of historically what he did in saving Egypt and Israel and all of the nations from famine. And so Joseph is this, this description of an abundant prosperity. And it is ruined. As is, if they're reading the Torah at all, which they're not, but if they were reading their Bibles at all, they would see that all of the nation was to experience a life of material blessing and prosperity. But in Israel at the time, it was restricted to those who lived on the mountain. It was restricted to those who were of the, of the elite aristocracy. And the rest of the people were suffering. And they didn't see it. They didn't see it. They were at ease, feeling secure behind their strongholds. 
We also looked last week at this movement in America. So in 2009, there was a study, I referred to a little bit last week. In 2009, there was a study looking at American residential segregation. And they were looking at several things. Among them was, you know, uh, minority group segregation and also socioeconomic segregation. And what they saw was that the segregation due to uh, ethnicity was getting better. And it had been for four decades, which means that there's a, a greater integration of ethnic diversity in the neighborhoods. But what's happened in the last few decades, and especially um, just in the last one or two, was that the socioeconomic segregation has been increasing. And it's not like just the, the super upper class. The study showed that um, average income, okay, middle class, they saw trends towards people leaving and moving away from the poor. And essentially what happens, we talked about this principle of moral proximity last week, where we have an obligation, we have a moral obligation with the people that we are around and can form relationship with, that we see and hear on a, on a regular basis. Those are the people that we are ultimately the most responsible for. And what we have in our culture is a, a, a movement Okay, from the middle class on up, a movement away from the poor. And so what, it's, what, it's, what it is, whether it's intentional or unintentional, it is, a, it is an effort to minimize the, the sphere of our moral responsibility. Because if we have less people in our sphere that we can't see, that we can't know, that we can't have relationship with... Uh, then we won't have the, quote, moral responsibility to help them. That's what we, and that's, those are kinds of, those are structural choices and movements that are happening here, here in America. And we also see greed and debauchery. So again, the lying, the stretching out on sofas, the eating, the singing, uh, the type of leisure that is needed to invent and create instruments and music, uh, anointing themselves with the finest oils, uh, the emphasis is on the abundance that they were experiencing and on the quality. It was all the best. But again, you, you are not grieved at the ruin of Joseph. You're not grieved at the ruin of the entire city. And so they had a consequence coming upon them. God says, I'm going to deliver up the city to destruction. I am going to send in a foreign army, and they are going to oppress you. You've been oppressing, I'm going to oppress you. The great and the small will be destroyed. There's a little story there in, in uh, I think it's verses 11 and 12, where, where he says, Every, everybody's going to die in their households, and there will be a few remaining survivors, and they'll be carrying out corpses from homes and everybody will be hesitant to say anything but a whisper about God, lest he continue to bring on his destruction. So there's going to be this, this paranoid fear of God continuing to bring on an unrelenting destruction. You see, because God opposes the proud. I'll repeat what C.S. Lewis says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. 
A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. If you are proud, you cannot see God. When you cannot see God, what you have is not something that he has given to you. What you have is not something as a consequence of what your parents gave you. It's not something of the time and the culture and the place where you live. It's, it's everything that you have and are and do is a consequence of yourself. That's what happens when you're proud. And so you can't receive the good, but you'll also discount the possible bad that God can bring upon you. You See, it says that you, you push off the day of disaster. Oh, there's no way anything bad's going to happen to us. And you're just starting to simmer in your own boiling water because eventually you're going to die because of what you're doing, because of what you're doing. And so I want to highlight today, what is God's judgment today? I mean, we, we don't have prophets coming and telling us two years ahead of time, hey, God's going to come. If you don't shape up, you're going to be destroyed. We don't, we don't have that. We don't have that as individuals. We don't have that as a, as a church. We don't have that as a city or a state or as a nation. Now, we see earthquakes and we see armies and we see all these things that are in the biblical narrative of how God works to bring justice into his world. God works to bring injustice into to bring an end to injustice in his world. He does. He may take a lot longer than we would like, but God does that. We don't, we don't have the way, we don't have a way of saying, you know, when there, when there was a tornado here a few years ago and the, the steeple of one of the liberal Protestant churches downtown was destroyed because of the tornado of some Christian leaders and in town said it was God's judgment upon them. I don't know if we can say things like that. We don't know what God is doing to judge or if things are just a consequence of a corrupt earth and a corrupt world. But the scriptures are very clear that God will work to judge people and to bring discipline into our lives. With Christians, he specifically refers to it as discipline. And Jose's testimony a few weeks ago, he referred to this idea that is really strongly proclaimed in, in the book of Hebrews of, of God disciplining those he loves. But God is at work in all of the world drawing people to him. And because of our pride, because of our pride, we're often resistant to the subtle ways that God works at first in us to bring us to a point of looking up and not just looking down on everybody beneath us and wanting to be God. He, he brings us to the point where we have to look up. How does God judge today? How does God judge today? It is very important to know that the ability to be fully content and happy and at peace with what we have is a gift from God. King Solomon, who had everything he put his eyes to desire, 
only realized that he was happy when God blessed him with happiness and that the things that he acquired, the wealth, the, I mean, you know, you can read in Ecclesiastes what he did. But he recognized that it is God who gives happiness. It is God who gives happiness. So if you have a lot and you just keep pursuing and keep accumulating, but you don't find yourself coming to a place of joy or a sense of peace or a sense of being full, it's because that God is judging you. And he is withdrawing your ability to be happy and to be at peace. You will not have a sense of true security. Some of the most fearful people are the people that have the most structures around them in order to feel more secure. Because God is not giving them a sense of peace. He will not allow the ongoing movement against his order of things. He will not do that on a national basis And he will not do that in you. He doesn't want you to be a vessel of injustice. And you know what? All of us would be a vessel of injustice had God not stepped into our lives. I look back to the way I lived prior to becoming Christ. I mean, even up through middle school and high school, you can start to see where your relationships are self-serving, abusive because of your own desire, my own desire to be better than others. And it just gets worse the older we get and the more resources that we have, we just become increasingly oppressive. And remember, you don't have to be an active oppressor of people to be committing injustice. If you have separated yourselves from those who are in need, so you never have to see the need and never have to help the need, biblically, you are unjust. Biblically, you are unjust. God will start with gentle efforts. He will slowly bring down the things that you are trying to use to lift yourself up but continue to disappoint. Your possessions, your job, your status, your family, your health until you can come to a place where you can see him as God and you, and you put away the proud spirit. And he doesn't do this to hurt you. He does this to you, to us, until we get to the point that we realize that we need him and that we have always needed him and that he has always been there to strengthen, bless, and provide for us. We can never be rich or great or powerful enough to enjoy the peace and the greatness uh, and, and the joy that we desire. You know, God wants us to be great. <laughs> I love this verse in Romans chapter 2. He who seeks for glory and immortality. He who seeks for glory. Who, he who truly and sincerely seeks For glory and honor and immortality will find it. You know why? Because glory and honor and immortality are ultimately found in Jesus Christ. He is the richest of the rich. He is the most powerful of the powerful. He is the greatest of the great. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And and he wants us to have the experience that we long for, but we just keep um, trying to to achieve that fulfillment of those things, pleasure, happiness, 
power, security, peace, contentment, contentment. All these things, we keep wanting them and longing for them, but if we don't pursue them via Jesus Christ, we will pursue them through the oppression of other people. We need to receive and have and become the greatness of Jesus. But we have to recognize that um, we first must believe that in Him it is found. In Him it is found. And the path to get there is not by following his example, okay? We need to follow his example, but his example is there and will work if and only if we recognize and come to a place where we, in our fundamental state, will never achieve it. We are wholly inadequate. We are wholly inadequate. We need to humble ourselves and say, and, and, and if you're a Christian, and you've come to the point where you have believed in Jesus Christ, we still need to maintain this humble posture because even in our Christianity, we can get to a place where we are striving to to be great, but have thrown God and pushed him to the side. The longing for our greatness never goes away. It never goes away until we are abiding and walking in Christ. So we're constantly fighting this urge within us to, to its desire, our flesh's desire to achieve it on our own and not put ourselves into a place of humility before God, acknowledge our need and to ask him, to ask him to help us. And see, the, 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 Christ did this. Christ did this. He, he who was rich made himself poor in order that we should be rich. And so he came to earth as God, took the form of, human, of a human being, lived a life, demonstrated that he was indeed king of king and lord of lords. He was the promised Messiah, and that's what all the stories in the gospels are about up until his death, burial, and resurrection. Proving himself, proving to the world that he was indeed the Messiah. And then he suffered on the cross. He destroyed death, he destroyed sin, He destroyed the power of the corrupting forces on this earth and ultimately, at that point, destroyed the source of oppression and injustice. And what he's doing since then is working it out. So he raised from the dead and said, hey, the kingdom of God is here. And it's this already not yet. So it is possible for us to abide in Christ and through his Holy Spirit that indwells those who have believed we can have and experience that sense of greatness. It's not going to look like the world does in terms of greatness. We can have the peace, we can have the security, we can have the enjoyment, but it comes through the Spirit's work in us in transforming our hearts and minds and giving us a delight in things that the world has no comprehension of. And so we enter into this greatness by believing that Christ has gone and done it for us he has secured it, and by, here's, by belief in that gospel, that Christ is indeed God and the author of life and the giver of all good things, and that my ability to experience those is only going to be coming through him, when we believe that, we are baptized and made one with him. We are baptized into his death, so our old flesh has been destroyed, so it can no longer claim the authority that it once did, and we can overcome it. There's no reason to fear it anymore. We can overcome it. 
And then he, we are baptized into his resurrection, which means we are baptized into his, his life. And he is seated. The scriptures teach that he is seated at the right hand of the Father and that we are seated there with him. You know, there is no greater throne or authority than the right hand of God. And we are there with him. Now, that's a hard thing to conceive. But it is his spirit that gives us an understanding of that. And that's what, and that's what Jesus is calling us to believe in. Let go of the arrogance. Still pursue greatness. But it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be found through Christ. And when we find that, then when we get to a place, whether we're rich or whether we're poor or whether we're great or whether we're small, whatever our vocation, whatever our calling, whatever our placement in this world, with Christ in us and with us baptized into him, we can enter into a life of humbly enjoying and receiving what he gives us and giving generously to those who are in need that are around us. Let me pray.